Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron, one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, we are so thrilled you're with us. Let me add my welcome to Dean's, Nathan's the team. So glad you've chosen to spend Sunday morning with us. Uh, we're launching a brand new series today called Reset, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. I was thinking we're coming up on <clears throat> Memorial Day. I was thinking about one of my favorite Memorial Day memories here in North Carolina. It was actually, uh, we'd only been living here for a year, and we decided that uh, as a family, we needed to get out of Dodge, get up into the mountains, get some peace and quiet. So, so we all piled in the RV, and we drove up to Morganton area, a little campground up there called Steel Creek. I don't know if anybody's ever camped up at Steel, Keep, Steel Creek Campground. We were so excited, and we were going to break out the chairs, sit by the river, just listen to the birds and the rushing water. But when we pulled into the campground, we got out of the RV, and all we could hear was, ums, 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 ums. There there was this music coming from somewhere, this dance music. So it was dark, so we started to make our way towards the sound. You know, we just followed the sound. And after walking to the other side of the campground, what we came upon was this giant pavilion surrounded by pickup trucks, all with their lights on, shining towards the middle, and literally hundreds of people dancing to this music. And it was awesome. It was a huge party. They were playing Springsteen and Hank Jr. and, and some Aerosmith. I mean, it was awesome. So I'm standing there, kind of picture this, I'm standing there around the edge of the big dance floor, kind of just taking all this in, because again, this seems a little bit strange to me, I'm from California, we go camping, we camp, we don't go dancing, but anyway, that's another story. So I'm standing there watching, and then this song comes on, and literally, I mean everybody, jumps out of their pickup trucks, they all flood onto this dance floor, and without anyone telling them what to do, they all get into these lines, right? And I'd, I'd never seen anything like this. And then the, the song starts, and all of a sudden, they're, they're, doing, they're doing this. They're going to the right, to the right, to the right, to the right, to the left, to the left, to the left, to the Now kick, now kick, now kick. Now. Oh, some of you, you know this song. Okay, I didn't know. This is, this was, you know, everybody's doing this thing. I'm thinking, like, what is happening? This is crazy, right? So I'm just watching all of this. And, and it's like nobody had to tell them what to do. And so then I'm just standing there with my wife and kids, and, and, and then suddenly something starts to arise in me. It was, like, it was like the Death Star tractor beam was pulling me onto the dance floor, right? And so I'm just kind of there, and then much to my kids' demise, my wife and I eventually, you know, people are like, come on, come on. So we're like the only ones not dancing. So we get out on the dance floor, we're doing this. And it's the perfect kind of dance song for me because I have three left feet. And so the, the great thing about this song is the, the dance moves are built into the lyrics, right? Like stomp once. Okay, I can do that. Stomp twice. Okay, I can do that. Like this, that's about as good as my dancing gets you. And then within a few minutes, it was incredible. Y'all, I mean, I was like, I did the right. And I'm, I get to the kicks, and I only kicked like two or three people. It was great. It was just a perfect day, you know. And I was hooked. I was hooked. In fact, I'm so excited to go back uh, this year because uh, I've been practicing because there are some new songs out with dance moves. Y'all, y'all know, like, right, like the, this one, that the, uh, take my horse to the old town. We know this one. 
Ain't nobody tell me nothing. I see that was pretty good. I threw up to Braxton there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's, or or maybe maybe you're maybe you're not the maybe you're not the old town type. You're more like the um how's it go? I did two step and cowboy think your guitar and spinners. How'd that go? Something like that, right? Uh, anyway, yeah, whatever. Maybe your song is twist and shout, maybe it's boot scoot and boogie, whatever it is. Here's what I think I've learned through this line dancing experience. There's something about line dancing that resonates with every last one of us because deep, deep inside of us is a desire to belong to something bigger than ourselves. A a, a deep desire to feel connected to other human beings. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. I really just wanted to line dance, but we got to have a sermon, so we'll do that too. We're starting a new series called Reset, and it's all about four critical areas in our lives that we might need to just kind of evaluate this fall because these are four ingredients, four areas of our lives that lead to human thriving. They lead to a life of joy, a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment. And so we're going to take these, each one in turn. And today I want to start with the most basic one, which is this human need, this need that every last human being has to feel connected, to belong to something bigger than himself, bigger than herself. And that's where we're going to start. Now, our culture doesn't really help us out on this one a whole lot because our culture is really big on individualism, right? And, and for the last 400 years, in fact, kind of Western society has been experimenting with this idea that the individual is the end-all, be-all. And, and there's a lot of good that has come from that. Individual dignity, individual rights, individual responsibility. But today, I just want us to reflect, not, without taking away from any of that, on what, it is, what happens to the human soul when self... When our commitment to self takes priority. When our commitment to self ends up in the driver's seat. Because what I have come to believe as I've been studying this subject and reflecting on the scriptures is that our commitment to self, if if we're devoted to self, that that will always leave us feeling alone. It will always leave us feeling alone. In fact, the scriptures actually name this problem from the very beginning. The very first problem in the Bible, believe it or not, was not sin. The very first problem in the Bible was that hum, human, uh, humanity, humankind, was alone. In fact, Genesis 2.18 tells us that the Lord God said, uh, it is not good for man. That's the Adam. That's the word Adam. That's where we get the word human from. It is not good for Adam to be alone. Now, I know some of y'all right now, especially the introverts, are thinking, wait a second, I love being alone, right? Aaron, what's wrong with being alone? And if you're an introvert, there's nothing wrong with being alone. You feel recharged. You feel refueled, right? Recentered. Actually, to understand what the author, the scriptures is talking about here, we need to do a little word study because the word choice here is really interesting. The word, the Hebrew word for alone is the word bad. In other words, it's bad to be bad. Isn't that good? I thought that was, well, it's bad. Or is it good? Anyway, you get the idea. It's bad. What does this word mean? It simply means to be cut off from, to be separated from, to be disconnected. If we read it that way, the Lord God said, it is not good for human beings to be disconnected. Oh, interesting. That reads a little differently, doesn't it? Now, why would God care about this so much? Why would this be such an important thing for him? Well, because God in himself, in his very nature, is relationship. You've probably known this without knowing it maybe for many years. In fact, this is partly what the Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, but God is also Father, Son, and Spirit. 
fact, the earliest Christians had a really beautiful way of talking about this idea of the Trinity. God is one in three persons. And uh, they called it the divine dance. In fact, this is an image of a piece of art that just kind of captures I just love this image. That the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in a kind of eternal divine dance together. Isn't that kind of beautiful? They called it perichoresis, where we get our word choreography from. And what's so interesting to me about this is that partly when we become Christians, if, if you ever decide to become a Christian or if you're a Christian today, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. And what you have done is you've said yes to Jesus' invitation to join in on that divine dance. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now included in this relationship with God. But it doesn't stop there. God also places us in a kind of dance together that's called his community. The church. Now, I want to look today, and I want to do a little bit of teaching. We're going to be a little bit content heavy today. The note takers are going to love this message. But I want to do a little bit of teaching today on what the scriptures actually have to say about this kind of community. The kind of connected community that God desires for us to experience. Because the truth is, here's the truth right up front. None of us was created to dance alone. I don't care what Billy Idol said. You're not dancing by yourself, right? No, is it Billy Idol? David Bowie? Oh, come on. That's, I need a Gen Xer to help me out. Yeah. Billy Idol, Billy Idol, we had it. All right, Billy. No one was created to dance alone. We were all meant to have dance partners. And that's actually what we see when we get to the very beginning of the church in the New Testament. When the church is just getting started. Remember, Jesus came and he, he could have done all kinds of things. But what did Jesus do? He gathered a small group of people to do life together. And then when he left to return to be with the Father and he sent them his spirit, they then took those very same values that they had learned from Jesus and they began living that out in the book of Acts. And that's what we see in the second chapter. Let me read this to you. This is an incredible description of the first century church. They, that's the new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What a provocative picture. It's interesting, we're told, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, this word fellowship, I don't know about you, if you're a church person, you grew up in church and maybe you, have, you grew up in one of those churches where they had robes and pews, you probably also had a church where they had a fellowship hall, right? How many of you all grew up with fellowship halls? Okay, so this word fellowship might have some baggage to it, right? Because fellowship meant that hour after church when you wanted to go home and play Nintendo, but you got dragged with grandma into the church basement and you were forced to eat green jello with whole chunks of fruit and marshmallows on top. We have a recovery group for that, uh, but it's, uh, for some of us, this is what we think of when we think of fellowship, right? But this word fellowship is actually a very, very special word in the New Testament. It's a very important word, and it means this. It means literally doing life together, doing life together rather than disconnected. 
It means having a group of people that you laugh with. You celebrate each other's wins. You celebrate each other's joys. It means having a group of people that you weep together. You mourn together. You suffer together. That's what fellowship is all about. And that's what being devoted to fellowship means. Now, something we often miss when we we think about the church in the first century, because we kind of take what we know today and we import it back to then, but it was very, very different. In fact, the early church uh, did not have any buildings to meet in. They didn't even have school gyms to do set-up church in like we do. Uh, In fact, the only place the early church had to meet in was homes. Look at how it describes it here in our verses from Acts. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. I'm going to say a word about that in a second. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You see, some some of them, the men only, by the way, they were the only ones allowed in the temple gates. They would go there for prayers and for evangelism to the Jews who had not yet heard about Jesus. But the Christians, the center of the Christian life was in the home where they did exactly what Jesus had taught them to do. They They broke bread, they prayed, they loved one another, they served one another, they did life together. They were devoted to fellowship. Now, if you go through the book of Acts, and this is kind of a fun exercise. This is just, this is a little bit mind-blowing. If you go through the books of Acts, you'll see little communities, home after home after home, listed where these Christians met. Uh, Some folks met in Jason's house, uh, Titus Justice's house, Philip's house, Lydia's house, the Philippian jailer's house, Mary the mother of John's house. These are all homes that are mentioned in the book of Acts. That's where people met. The New Testament letters were written and addressed to people in their homes, We have uh, uh, believers who were greeted in the house of Priscilla and Aquila, or believers at the house of Aristobulus, looking for a good baby name, there's one. Uh, Believers in the house of Narcissus, that was a support group for recovering egomaniacs. Believers at the house of Nympha or Onesiphorus and Archippus, a couple more baby names in case you're looking. Here's the big point. The home was the center. The home was the locus of connection and Christian community. This is what they were devoted to. In the New Testament, the idea was not that you went to church, sat in a pew, and somehow these little groups on the side were optional if, like, I don't know, we didn't have anything better to do on Tuesday night, right? These groups were the lifeblood of Christian community. This was God's plan from the beginning. And what I want to suggest to you today is that the plan has not changed. This is still his plan, A. So I warned you, I want to do a little bit of teaching on this passage with the time we have here. I want to make the case to you today that in these very verses we just read, there are four characteristics, four markers of what true Christian community looks like. It's the very kind of connected community that you and I are longing for. And today, as I, as I teach through these four kind of traits, these four marks of a, of a great group. If you're in a group, you can kind of think about your group. How is my group doing at these four things? And if you're not a group, if you don't have a circle, if you don't have a dance team that you're a part of, what would it look like maybe for this season? Maybe this is your time to get on the dance floor. So four marks of community from this short passage in Acts. Uh, Note takers, I'll, I'll enumerate them for you. Number one, first characteristic is devotion. A great group, a, a, a connected group is devoted to one another. I was reading on this this week. There's a famous sociologist uh, who says that we now live in the era of uh, convenient relationships, or excuse me, relationships of convenience is what he calls them. 
relationships where, well, I'll, I'll be committed to you so long as, well, I don't have any, anything else going on, right? Or, or so long as it doesn't cost me anything. And uh, I was thinking about this. It's kind of funny. I, uh, a couple years back, I invited some friends over for dinner. And I sent out texts, you know, a week before. And most of the people responded, hey, I'll be there, or hey, I can't, I'm out of town, whatever. And there was one guy who didn't respond to me. And so it was Thursday, and Saturday was coming. I was trying to figure out. So I said, hey, did, did you get my invite? Or are, are, you, are you coming to dinner or not? And, and he wrote back the most honest answer. He said, well, well, I'm not sure yet, Aaron. I'm waiting to see if I have any better options. <laughs> anyway, I appreciated his honesty. But see, what I realized in that moment is that was a relationship of convenience, right? Now, I'm not going to ask any show of hands, but some of us have done this before, haven't we? I've done this, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe there was something better I don't want to miss out on. And this is just kind of the water that we swim in. But relationships of convenience never lead to the kind of connection that we long for. In fact, Jesus, when he gathered his little dance group of 12, he never made them feel like they were an obligation or that they were kind of second thought to him. Jesus made this group, these relationships, his priority. And he did something that no rabbi had ever done before. What rabbis generally did is they would go into a public space and they would teach. And then students who wanted to come, who were interested in joining that rabbi, they kind of had to come and audition and they kind of had to ask. It was beneath a rabbi, or so it was thought, to actually ask a student, a Talmudin is the word in Hebrew, to come and join him. But Jesus turned this whole system upside down. And Jesus came after people that that nobody else thought worthy of this. And Jesus says, I want you to be my disciple. I want you on my team. I want to do life with you. I want to be your friend. Will you join me? And can you imagine the power of Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, I'm choosing you. It changed these guys' life forever. See, Jesus showed them what it meant to be devoted. And his little community was not going to be a place of relationships of convenience. Now, why did Jesus pick these 12? I kind of mentioned there, kind of a little bit of rag. Did he pick them because they are so beautiful and healthy and normal? Uh, no, no. In fact, uh, let me go through the list real quick here. Um, Jesus, uh, these folks were, you know, not exactly the cream of the crop, right? Peter uh, was a little bit, well, he was a little bit uh, outspoken and, and impulsive. Thomas was a doubter. Judas was greedy. James and John were ladder climbers. Uh, there was a man named Simon who was a zealot, which meant he hated tax collectors. And then there was another man named Matthew who was a tax collector, which meant he hated zealots. How would you have liked to have been in that small group, right? <laughs> and yet this was the very kind of community that Jesus came to create. Something about true devotion, something about true connection that transcends our differences, transcends our flaws and imperfections. So, reflection question number one, if devotion is a true mark of connection, of a great group, how are we doing on this one? Who are the people in your life that you are devoted to? All right, marker number one, devotion. Marker number two, authenticity. True connection. A great group is a safe place where people can be known and loved for who they really are, not who they pretend to be. 
Acts 2.46 puts it this way. says that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, this word sincere is really, really fascinating. It is a Latin word. I'm sorry, we're doing, I told you I'm teaching today, so we got some, a lot of words here. This word sincere, it's a Latin word, comes from two parts. The word seen, which means without, right? That's true in Spanish too, seen is without. And the word ser, or sere, which means wax. To be sincere was to be without wax. What's this all about? Well, in Jesus' day, the Romans, they loved Greek sculptures. Greeks were a couple hundred years before them, right? They were the ones who'd done all these great marble statues. But these marble statues over time had been weathered. They had cracked or they were, there were some imperfections. And so if you were in the art market, what you would do is you would get some wax and you would seal up all those cracks with wax and you would try to pawn off your flawed statue as a perfect statue because you could make more money, right? And so then if you had a statue that had no wax and it didn't have any imperfections, you would actually market it. You would advertise it as a statue sincere, without wax, because you were presenting the real thing. Here in Jesus' day was a brand new kind of community where people got together and they ate with sincere hearts. No wax, no pretense, just their real selves. I remember when I first met my wife, Mary Robin, this was one of the things that just so drew me to her. Uh, I don't want to paint her as a perfect person. She's a very human person, and our marriage is full of imperfections, mostly me. But uh, I found a kind of freedom in Mary Robin that I am just so attracted to. When I first met her, she, she, she was as real and authentic as they come. Uh, with Mary Robin, what you see is what you get. There's no pretense. There's no mask wearing. And it's something that I love about her to this day. And, and, and what I have found in myself over time is, you know, I, I kind of want that to be true of me. <laughs> but, but there are times in my life when, well, I just want to appear smarter than I actually am. Or, or I want people to think I'm more spiritual than I really am. Or I'm kind of worried that they might discover that there are some cracks in this statue, and I would rather cover those up. I'm not sure what would happen if I let you see the real me, the me without wax. You know, it's interesting. There's a story in one of Paul's letters. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he writes about a guy named Moses. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know Moses was one of the big leaders in the Old Testament. And there was this experience that Moses had where he went up on top of a mountain and it said that he met with God. And when he came down from the mountain, this experience was so powerful. The text says that Moses' face actually glowed, right? His face kind of lit up. And, and this was so striking to people. They, they came and they saw Moses and like, oh, wow, he is so holy. Man, that guy is so spiritual. Wow, Moses, his face is glowing. And, and the problem is Moses started kind of liking this, right? He kind of liked people treating him that way. But then one morning, Paul tells him, you know, he, he wakes up and, and that glow, that radiance is, is starting to fade. And so he does uh, what, I don't know, maybe some of us would do. He gets out a veil. I don't know if it was left over from uh, his marriage or whatever it is. He, he borrows his wife's veil and he decides to cover his face so that, so that people won't notice that his bright, shiny face is fading. The radiance was leaving. And Moses was afraid that people would see him 
for who he really was. But Paul goes on and he says this. He contrasts that experience of Moses with what we know, those of us who have experienced the grace and acceptance of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says here in Corinthians. He says, since we have the promise of God's love and acceptance, since we know that God loves us for who we actually and really are, sincerely, no wax, through what Jesus has done for us, we can live with unveiled faces. Interesting. No hiding. No wax. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine actually doing life that way? Can you imagine people actually being glad to see you, knowing they're seeing the real you? As I think about it in my own life, I think it's the very kind of love and acceptance I ache for. It's the very kind of connection my soul craves. A great group is a place where it is safe to be the real you. No hiding, no wax. So let me ask you, who are the people in your life that know the real you? First characteristic, devotion. Second characteristic, authenticity. We've got two more to go. Hang in there. We're teaching today. Third characteristic is this. Great groups, groups that do connection the way God designed it, are committed to growth. They're committed to growth. The book of Acts tells us in our passage that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. What's that all about? We see these are the markers of spiritual community. And this is what makes spiritual community different than other kinds of community that we experience. And you've experienced some other good community, right? If you've ever played on a, on a ball team that made it to the playoffs or maybe even to the championship, you had a kind of bond with those folks. That, that was real. That's really good. Or maybe you've got a group of folks that you get together and play Fortnite with, whatever. And, and there's a kind of connection that happens there. But in spiritual community, there's a special kind of connection because spiritual community has chosen to place Jesus at the center of its existence. You see, when these early Christians gathered together, they didn't just get together, break bread, and play Fortnite. They got together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the words that the apostles had preserved from Jesus himself. And the idea here is that they would meet together in these little communities, in each other's homes. They would learn together about what Jesus had taught, not just for the sake of information, but for the sake of transformation. And they would ask each other, how do we do this? How do we change? How do we put these words into action? They devoted themselves to that. They prayed for each other. They held each other accountable. And I am convinced that this is exactly what Paul was talking about in Ephesians when he said, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. See, the truth is, in my own life, I have sat through lots and lots and lots of sermons. The vast majority of my own are my own, and I can promise you I have not changed all that much from my own preaching. Sermons are great. We learn a ton from sermons. But you know where life change happens? It doesn't happen in rows. It happens in circles. And that's exactly what Paul was saying. When we are in a connected community where we can speak the truth in love to one another about ourselves we discover that we begin to grow and change. We discover that slowly 
over time, God is shaping us more and more into the image of his son. So, reflection question number three, who are the people helping you grow spiritually? Who are the people helping you grow spiritually? All right, three things, devotion, authenticity, growth. Fourth and finally, almost there, almost to home plate. Fourth and finally is this, great groups, groups that experience connection the way God designed it, practice a kind of other-centered love. You know, our little passage ends with these fascinating words from Acts. It says that the Lord continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, you study this for history. You you go and research this. This is mind-blowing. There is no other movement in the history of the world that spread as rapidly and as broadly as Christianity did. And I am convinced that it is this single reason right here that actually contributed to that cause. Because what the world saw in these little communities was a kind of Jesus love, a kind of other-centered love, a sacrificial love, a forgiving love, a committed love, a love that laid down their lives for one another, a love that put the needs of the others before their own. And the world had never seen a love like this before. And when these little communities in these little homes embodied that kind of love, man, the entire world wanted to get in on that. Because we all were created for connection. None of us was meant to dance alone. I think about some of the glimpses that I've had of that in our own community here at Westlake. Sometimes on Sunday nights, my boys come to remix, and I'll come a little bit early, and I'm like, I'm that parent. I can say this because they're not here. I didn't say this in first service. And I'll kind of peek in the door and watch, you know, like, and I'll watch what's happening. And I remember one of the Sundays when I came and did that, and I, I was just I just kind of, I almost wanted to weep when I saw this, but my, my teenage boy was sitting around a table with other teenage boys sharing burdens and struggles, and they were praying for each other. Hallelujah, that's like kingdom come, right? I mean, parents of middle schools, is that incredible? I mean, that's remarkable, right? And then our high schoolers, Caesar and the leaders of Remix, and man, they have done such an amazing job creating this family, this, this safe place. And man, high school's tough. It is so tough. And yet they've become this kind of spiritual family together where, where they're doing life. It, it's remarkable. Some of y'all are in community groups. And man, I just, it has been a minute at this church in the last year. Holy cow. And some of you and some of your communities, we have faced some really tough challenges losses and just hardships that are, well, they're just indescribable. And to watch the way you have rallied together to carry one another's burdens the way Jesus called us to, it is absolutely remarkable. And if the world, if our community ever gets a glimpse of that, they will be knocking on your door because that is the very kind of connection that they, that you, that I, that we all are longing for. And so can you imagine, can you imagine what God could do with our church as we follow our master Jesus in creating pockets of connection that do just 